Again, we're going to pick up in Isaiah 6.1, and we're going to read all the way to the end of the chapter. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull, and their eyes heavy, and blind and their ears heavy, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn, and be healed. Then I said, How long, O Lord? And he said, Until cities lie waste without inhabitant, and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste. And the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tent remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. Let's pray together. God, we thank you that in your grace, you let us have relationship with you. That in your grace, you gave Isaiah this vision of yourself. You revealed yourself to him. And we thank you that in the midst of this vision that he had of you, you provided a way of atonement for him so that he could come back and tell the story. God, I pray today that as we learn together more about who you are by how you've revealed yourself to Isaiah, that you would just cause us to respond in, in awe and worship to who you are, uh, that we would marvel at the God who is high and lifted up, who is holy, 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 and who also provides a way of atonement for his people. And I pray that you would help us see that today. So in your name we pray. Amen. All right, so as I said, this passage answers the question of how Israel can move from being these completely, totally sinful people to being these people that the nations are going to come to to find out what God requires of them. And the answer is that they need to have the same experience that Isaiah does. Isaiah gets this vision of God. Uh, that's what we see in the first four verses. I think we got a slide here. Isaiah has this vision of God where he sees him, God reveals himself to him. Uh, and then, in response to that, in response to seeing this God who is holy, 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 who is high and lifted up, he confesses his sin. Then, in verses 6 and 7, God is going to provide atonement for his sin. And then, in the last kind of half of the chapter, God commissions Isaiah to go out and be his messenger. He tells him that he needs to go out, and then he tells him what it is that he is to say to the people. So, let's look at his vision of God 
first in verses 1 through 4. First thing Isaiah tells us is when this happened. He says that this took place in the year that King Uzziah died. And this is important, I think, because what it is, is, is it's telling us when this vision happened. And I think that Isaiah is communicating it in this way to the people because in his vision of God, he learns something very important, very significant about who God is that would have spoken to those people during this time in a significant way. Because what's going on, we talked about it last week, if you remember, when Uzziah was king, the, the nation of Israel and the nation of Judah had kind of expanded. They had grown economically, they had grown militarily, they had taken back a whole lot of territory, and it was almost like a second golden age in Israel and Judah. They, they had reached almost the heights they reached under King Solomon. And so it was a great time to be in Judah or to be in Israel. But towards the end of Uzziah's reign, things started to change. The people had declined spiritually, they were proud, they were arrogant, they oppressed the poor, they oppressed the widow, they oppressed the orphan they worshiped idols. They did all of these things that were clearly in contradiction to God's covenant with Israel. And in addition to that, there was this giant enemy in the north, Assyria, who was growing, who had had a new king take, take command that was going to turn his attention down to the south. So towards the end of Uzziah's reign, it, it was probably a pretty kind of tenuous time in Israel and Judah. And so when Uzziah died, the people would have been particularly worried about what was going to happen next. And so in this vision, I think what we see is God reassuring Isaiah and through Isaiah, the nation, that he is king, that he is in control, that he is in command. It doesn't matter that their earthly king just died because God still reigns on his throne. I think that's what we're going to see emphasized in this vision. So it happened in the year the king Uzziah died, and then he tells us what he saw. He saw the Lord sitting upon a throne. Who sits on thrones? Kings and queens. Don't be sexist, right? <laughs> Kings and queens, rulers, people who are in charge, sit on thrones. So him seeing the Lord sitting on a throne is emphasizing the fact that God reigns. He's in control. He is over all those who are underneath his throne. And Isaiah doesn't just say he sees him sitting on a throne. He sees him sitting on a throne, and this throne is high and lifted up. It is exalted. It's way up there. Uh, there was this recurring refrain back in chapter 2 that we saw last week where he said, the Lord alone would be exalted. No one else would be as exalted as he is. And when he says, that he's on this throne and this throne is high and lifted up. What he's emphasizing is that God's throne is above every other throne that exists. He reigns over all of them. He reigns over kings, over queens, over princes, over rulers, over governors, over prime ministers, over presidents. He reigns. He is Lord. He is high and lifted up. He is the only king that matters. All those other people are just taking up a chair underneath him. And I think that it's not just something that's important for them to recognize during this tenuous time in their nation, but also something that we should recognize during this time in our nation. It doesn't matter who is in the Oval Office. God is absolutely the one who is in control. And so regardless of what happens, he reigns. He is high and lifted up. He also says that the train of his robe fills the temple. There are two significant aspects of what he says about this. He says the train of his robe fills the temple. The first is uh, what it tells us about God's physical description. So he says, 
The train of the robe, the train of his robe filled the temple. The train, it's either the, the train or the hymn, but regardless of which one it is, it's the part that touches the floor. It's like the, the very bottom part of his robe. And Isaiah is saying that it fills the temple. Um, he gives kind of this general, I saw him sitting on a throne, and then when he starts to get specific, starts to describe him more, he stops at the hem of his robe, and if you read further, there's nothing else about what the Lord looks like. We see the same thing in uh, Exodus 24, uh, when Moses and Aaron and his sons and the elders of Israel, they see God. This is what it says. Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. This is crazy. These guys get this vision of God. They, they see the Lord. Isaiah sees the Lord. They come down from the mountain, and what is the first question anyone in their right mind who understands what just happened asks? What does he look like? And they say, well, the ground was blue and clearish. Isaiah sees God. In the year the king Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. What does he look like? Well, the hem of his robe is really big. Either God only lets people who suck at describing things see him, Or these people have visions of God that are indescribable and they start to describe him and they can't get past the floor. The pavement was blue. The hem of his robe was big. And then they're done because language fails, imagery fails, figures of speech fail. They have nothing in their arsenal to describe what it is that they see. The second thing is what he says about the robe. Right, he says the robe is, is huge. It's so big that the very bottom part of the robe, it fills the temple. It stuffs the temple full. And it's just the bottom part. It's just the train. It's just the hem. It's just the very bottom of his robe. So his point, what this means, is that the robe is really big. But what he wants us to learn is that God is really big. The one who wears the robe is who matters. Uh, and this is important because where's this vision taking place? Isaiah says he saw the Lord where? In the temple. For them, the temple represented the place that God was present with his people. If you asked an Israelite, where's God? They'd say, in his temple. But Isaiah sees God and finds out that the very bottom part of his robe fills the temple to fullness. So what he learns is that God isn't just on a throne. He's not just high and lifted up, but he's so big that even the bottom part of his robe is too big for this temple that they've constructed for him. He's learning that God can't possibly fit in this house they've built for him. Isaiah learns that God is a whole lot bigger than he thought he was. He's a whole lot higher. He's a whole lot more exalted than he thought he was. Even the hem of his robe fills the temple. I don't know who said it. I've heard it attributed to a lot of different people, but the quote is that whatever your view of God is, it's too small. I think that that's exactly what Isaiah finds out. He had pictured God as this God who lived in this temple, and he finds out that this God is much, much bigger than he imagined. And whatever we picture in our heads when we think about God is too small. 
because he's infinite. He's, he's beyond our comprehension. We cannot imagine a God big enough to be as big as he is. We can't imagine a God good enough to be as good as he is. We can't imagine a God holy enough to be as holy as he is. He is beyond our reasoning and our imagination. He sees God. He finds out that his robe fills the temple, and then he moves upward. He skips over God, can't describe him, so he describes the, these creatures that are above him. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. The word here for seraphim, it's, it's literally burning one or fiery one. And I think what we see here in his description of these, these angels, these messengers that are in God's presence, is that the kind of American contemporary Christian understanding of angels is, is pretty wrong. Right? These aren't cute little fat babies with wings and harps and white, white wings. They're not people whose you know, heads kind of light up at the back so you know that they're an angel like some TV show. They're fiery. And any time an angel shows up on the scene in the Bible, what happens? People are terrified. They're terrified because these creatures who exist in God's presence represent his holiness in a way that nothing else does. Because they always do what he says, except for Satan, and we know what happened to him. There are these fiery creatures in God's presence. They fly with two, they cover their face, with two, they cover their feet, and with the other two wings, they fly. I don't think we should push uh, you know, too much into that and say, well, what does it mean that they cover this face? What does it mean they cover their feet? I think that what we should see there is that unlike human beings, these creatures who are in God's presence recognize their need to show humility before him. They cover themselves in recognition of the fact that they are created and he is not, that he is holy and that they are not. They show this sense of recognition that God is different from them and they need to hide their, themselves from him in a way that they don't, other creatures, other, other beings. And then Isaiah tells us what they said. One called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled or is full of his glory. When he repeats holy, holy, holy here in Hebrew, that shows emphasis. So if you wanted to say something was more than holy, you'd say it's holy, holy. If you wanted to say that it was the holiest thing you could possibly imagine, you would go three times. Holy, holy, holy. This is their superlative. And so like for them to say good, 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 that would mean best. For them to say bad, bad, bad would mean the worst thing imaginable. Here he's saying holy, holy, holy because he wants us to understand that God is the holiest. There is no one that is more holy than he is. He's trying to emphasize his holiness. We're going to come back to this in a second. Second part of the phrase, he says, the whole earth is full of his glory. Again, this is Isaiah having his vision of God shattered and expanded beyond what he thought it was. It's not just the temple that's filled with God's glory. The entire earth is full of it. When the seraphim finished speaking the, the thresholds of the temple. The foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the whole house was filled with smoke. This was an awe-inspiring and probably slightly terrifying experience that Isaiah had. The, the temple shakes. Not at God's voice. 
at the voice of the messengers who are in his presence. Isaiah learns how small he is and how big God is. Now, before we move on to the next part, I want to I take a step back and ask a few questions about this. Um, because I think it's important for us to understand what's, what's happening here and to think a little bit about the way that God's holiness relates to the rest of who he is. So the first question is, who is it that Isaiah sees here? And the reason why I think this is an important question for us to stop and ask is because I think when we read Scripture, we turn into heretics sometimes. Uh, there's this heresy called modalism, which is a, is a distortion of the Trinity. It's essentially the belief that right, God is three in one. He's Father, Spirit, and Son. And some people think that God existed as the Father in the Old Testament, and then when the New Testament happened, he kind of became the Son, like he changed modes. And then once the Son ascended into heaven, he came back as the Spirit, so he kind of changed into the Spirit. So that's called modalism, and it's heresy. It's not what the Bible teaches. It's a distortion of uh, the truth. But I think that when we read the Bible, we operate with that kind of understanding. We think, oh, like this is the Old Testament. Like that's when, that's when the Father did stuff. He did stuff back then, you know, that God who like judges people and like causes wars and stuff, like that's just him. It's just the father. But when we get to the New Testament, then we find out about this Jesus guy who's a whole lot nicer and a whole lot more loving than the father was. And now he's kind of in charge of things. But he's up there in heaven and now he sent his kind of his partner, the spirit down here who like helps us with our stuff. And we, I think, tend to kind of break the Bible into those really bad distinctions. So like we read the Old Testament and God does something and we kind of automatically think that it's the Father. But I would submit to you that that's not who Isaiah sees. Isaiah sees Jesus. And I have three verses to prove it, just in case you don't believe me. The first is Colossians 1.15, where Paul says about Jesus, he says, He is the image of the invisible God. God is invisible. But Jesus is his image. So if you see God, you see Jesus, because he's the image of the invisible God. Second verse is from John 6:46. This is Jesus speaking. He says, not that anyone has seen the Father. So how do we know that Isaiah didn't see the Father? Well, because Jesus says so. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God, which is Jesus, he has seen the Father. A third verse is John 12, 41. This is John kind of explaining, he's explaining why people didn't respond to Jesus' message. And he quotes a few chunks of Isaiah. And then he says, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory. His is Jesus. He saw Jesus' glory and spoke of him. So John, inspired by the Holy Spirit, writes in the Bible that Isaiah saw Jesus. So when he has this vision of this God who's high and lifted up, who's seated on the throne, who has this robe, who overfills the temple, he sees Christ. What does it mean, the next question, is what does it mean that God is holy, holy, holy? So I've already explained that the repetition there, holy, 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 is emphasizing something. He's emphasizing that God is holier than anything else. But what does it mean to be holy? There's, there's kind of two sides of this word. One side is this idea of set-apartness, like otherness, alienness. It's different from anything else. To be holy means to be separate and different. On the other side, there's this idea of moral purity, 
Holiness is, is pureness. It's perfection. It's being sin-free. But when we see God being described as holy, these two ideas come together. And they come together because part of what makes God so other, so alien, so different from us is that he has moral perfection in a way that is completely other and different and distinct from us. No one is holy like God. No one is perfect like God. No one has the sinful or sin, sinless perfection that he has. And that's what makes him holier than anything else. Because he has both of those elements smashed together into one, and that makes him even more holy than we thought he was. So, when we think about that idea of holiness, how does that fit with grace and mercy and love? Because God is holy, but he's also those things too. And here, uh, understanding a a theological concept can really help us out. So I'm going to explain this thing, and then I'm going to explain why I'm explaining this thing. There's this doctrine, uh, which I think I've talked about before here, but it's called the doctrine of divine simplicity. And what it means is that uh, all of God's attributes exist together, right? We don't have one God who's holy and then another God who's gracious. God is gracious. He's also holy. Those two things exist in him at the same time. And because of what we know about God, we know that he never changes, and he's perfect, we know that God uh, always will be what he is. If he's loving, he will always be loving. He always has been loving, he is loving right now, and he will always be loving because God doesn't change. If he is holy, he always has been holy, he is holy right now, and he always will be holy because God never changes. God is also perfect in all of his ways. Because of that, what God always is, he always perfectly is. And so he was holy, perfectly holy in the past. He's perfectly holy right now, and he will be perfectly holy in the future. He was perfectly loving in the past. He is perfectly loving right now, and he will be perfectly loving in the future. He can't be any more holy. He can't be any more loving. He can't be any more merciful because he's already perfectly as merciful and holy and loving as he needs to be and as he always will be. Absolutely. And the reason why that matters, the reason why I bring that up on Mother's Day, is because I think we tend to pit his attributes against each other. We tend to think that there's some sort of tension or things that need balancing out in God. Like if he's, if he's holy, you know, then his grace kind of balances that out on the other side. And if he's, he's you know, less holy, then he's more gracious. Or if he's more gracious, then he's less holy. And we tend to pit these things, especially his holiness and his grace and his mercy and love against one another. But what this doctrine tells us is that that doesn't happen in God. His attributes are not at war within him. His holiness and his grace are not at war within him. Instead, he's as possibly holy as he could be, and he's as possibly gracious as he could be. And I think that how this ties into the idea of how his grace, mercy, and love relate to his holiness is that instead of seeing them as balancing each other out, we should recognize that what they do is magnify and amplify one another. 
right? Because God is holy, because he's different, and because he is morally pure in a way that no one else is morally pure, because he shows us grace who are not holy, who are not morally pure, instead of that detracting from his holiness, it just makes him far more different than we thought he was. It just pushes him more this way, because we are people who don't show grace, even though we're imperfect. One imperfect person sins against us, an imperfect person, and we have a hard time forgiving them and giving them grace for it. God is perfect, and he gives us grace, and that just makes him even more different from us than we thought he was. So his holiness, him being holy, 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 it doesn't make him any less gracious. Him being gracious makes him more holy. And that's great for me to know. I think especially because Isaiah sees Jesus here. Part of him recognizing these angels announcing that he is holy, holy, holy. It's calling us to see the grace that God shows Isaiah in this passage. And by extension, to celebrate the grace that he shows Israel and Judah and the grace that he shows us. We see this grace in the next three verses. Isaiah sees God, and he responds by confessing his sin. He says, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah here recognizes that he is far more like the people he has just been pronouncing judgment against than he thought. He puts himself with them instead of with God. He understands that he is unclean, that his lips are unclean, that he is lost, and he has just been pronouncing woe on all of them, and now he pronounces it upon himself because he knows that people who are sinful don't get to see God and live. People who are sinful and see God, they die. So Isaiah pronounces that upon himself, and look at what happens. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken from tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. There's two things I think we learn about grace here. The first thing is that grace is done to Isaiah. Go go back and look at Isaiah's words. He says, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. There is no petition. There is no prayer. There is no plea in his words. He is simply recognizing, this is where I'm at, and it's not a good place to be. Then God acts. Grace is orchestrated and controlled by God. Isaiah doesn't have a say in it. He doesn't request it. He doesn't ask for it. God just does it to him. And when we think about how he's shown us grace, we should recognize that that's exactly what happened for us. We don't cause grace to be given to us. God causes grace to be given to us. We don't make atonement for ourselves. We don't cause his atonement to be applied to us. It's something God does. Jesus died so long before we were born. We didn't have any part in that whatsoever. And yet God counts that for us. He gives us grace based on that. 
The second thing that we need to see here, first, his grace is outside of our control. It's something that's done to us that we don't do for ourselves. The second thing is that his work of atonement and showing us grace is final and it is effective. The angel takes this burning coal from the altar that represents God's provision for his people. He touches Isaiah's lips with it. And then he says, your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. It's, it's done. It's happened. His guilt is taken away. His sin is atoned for. His lips are no longer unclean. He's no longer lost. Woe no longer rests upon him. Isaiah has been delivered. He's free. Because of that, he gets to live in God's presence. Because of that, he gets to go out and be commissioned by God. And for those of us who have trusted in Christ, we need to realize that this is absolutely true for us as well. Right? On the cross, Jesus said, it is finished. It's, it's done. Atonement has happened. Our sin has been paid for. Our guilt has been taken away. And they don't come back to us. The reason why that's important is because we consistently, as God's people, believe the lie that those things have not happened. We either think that Jesus' death on the cross wasn't effective for us, or we think that now we need to do something to make ourselves more atoned and take away more guilt from us. But it's done. It's happened. God did it to us. And we didn't have any part in it then, so we don't have any part in it now. We have atonement, right? Our sin has been paid for. Christ bore the penalty for our sin and he's freed us from its power. And either we believe that or we don't. And if we do believe it, we should always believe it and never believe the lie that it hasn't happened, that it's not effective for us. Because that makes light of Christ and makes much of our sin. That's not a place we want to be. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. If you've trusted in Christ, that is true of you. Then God commissions Isaiah. Isaiah hears a voice, the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Isaiah, with his newly cleaned lips, says, Here I am, send me. And then he finds out what it is that he's going to say in 9 and 10. Go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Isaiah's mission is to be successful at being unsuccessful. Go out, be depressing, be boring, be hard to understand. Confuse these people so that they don't respond to you. That's your mission. Go, go do it. Isaiah responds with a question that I think any of us would ask under these circumstances. He says, how long do I have to do this? Because this is not going to be a fun job. How long? God responds with an answer that Isaiah probably didn't expect. Until cities lie waste without inhabitant, and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste, and the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again, like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. Isaiah's mission is to go out and cause people not to respond to his mission. 
He asks how long, and the God, God says until pretty much everything is destroyed. And until the people are almost completely wiped out in the judgment that I'm bringing upon them. But it's not all bad news. It is, it is mostly bad news, almost completely all bad news. But there's a little hint, a glimpse at the end that redemption is coming. He says, though a tenth remains, so a tenth of the people remain after the kind of the first thing, then it's going to be burned again. That's too many people left. But like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled, the holy seed is its stump. He's saying that there's going to be a little tiny bit left. It's going to be like a stump that's been chopped down. It's going to be like a seed that's minuscule in size. But seeds grow. Trump, or stumps. <laughs> Can't go anywhere without hearing about that guy. Stumps spring forth new growth. When he says the holy seed here, he's talking, I think, about this remnant that he's talked about some in the first five chapters. It's going to grow. It's going to prosper. It's going to flourish. But he's also talking about more than that. I think he's talking about the promise that God gave to Abraham. God told Abraham that through his offspring, seed, through his offspring, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. We see that promise fulfilled in God's people as a whole, as, as we go out and we're a blessing to all nations. But where we see that promise ultimately fulfilled is in Christ. Because he is the one offspring, the one descendant of Abraham through whom the nations find their truest blessing, where they find the opportunity for redemption. And this, this stump that God tells Isaiah about here in Isaiah 6 is the stump. It's the holy seed through which Christ comes into the world. Right? If God burns it all, if he destroys it all, then the line that Christ comes through is done. But he preserves this small, small group so that through them he can send the one who is going to be the blessing to all nations, through whom he's going to show us grace. And so as we celebrate the Lord's Supper today, what we should do is we should recognize that the same things that are true about Isaiah in this passage are true about us. We too are worse than we thought we were and worse than we think we are. We are people of unclean lips. We dwell in the midst of a land of people of unclean lips. We are lost apart from God taking action on our behalf to show us grace. If he doesn't take away our guilt, if he doesn't atone for our sin, it can't be done. But in Christ, he has done it. Christ has come into the world through this holy stump. He has died on the cross. He has said, it is finished. And because of that, we know even more than we did before that God is holy, 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 that he is high and lifted up, that he does reign over everything and everyone. And we know that there are still ways in which he is going to bless the nations. He's going to redeem people from nations that haven't been redeemed from there yet. So as we celebrate the Lord's Supper today, I would just encourage you to spend some time asking the Holy Spirit to, to show you more of how God is holy than you thought before. 
that he would reinforce the truth that your guilt is taken away and that your sin is atoned for. And that as you celebrate Christ's death on your behalf today, that you would know that it doesn't take away from his holiness, but it it amplifies it, it magnifies it, it tells us that he's even more holy than we thought. Let's pray together.